असतो मद्गमया तमसो मोतिर्गमया मृत्युर्मात गमया ओ शाशाशाति Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. And today, it's a beautiful day outside, and it's also a very beautiful day in itself. Very significant. It's Mother's Day. In America, it's Mother's Day today. um one day several years ago in belurmat our main monastery in india i was walking by the bank of the ganges towards the temple of the holy mother ma sharada's temple and i was just thinking that if god would look upon all of us what would god think of us as i was just thinking that from god's point of view from our point of view that's god from god's point of view what are we just a thought came to my mind and as i was just climbing up the the steps to ma sharada's temple there the answer came automatically immediately of course god thinks us thinks of all of us as children god as mother you know that in vedanta in hinduism one prominent branch of hinduism conceives of god as mother at the sacred feminine and as mother the divine mother in fact one christian mystic probably eckart but uh, mr eckart but i don't know for sure he writes what does god do all day long i wonder and he says i will tell you he lies on a great maternity bed and gives birth all day long <laughs> now that sounds a little strange because in abrahamic traditions god has to be male but if you think of god as a uh, female as the feminine then it does not sound so strange at all indeed god as the source of all beings the divine mother the mother of all beings we are the children of the divine mother children of immortal bliss the holy mother ma sharada she said always know that even if you have nobody always know that you have a mother always know that you have a mother she told one of her disciples go and tell them that whoever has come whoever is yet yet to come whoever has not come for all of them my blessings mother's blessings are there the love and blessings of mother are there so today on this day all mothers we extend our love and our respect and our gratitude for all the mothers in the world and and especially for the divine mother this morning the subject is profound it can it cannot get any more profound the very heart of vedanta the very core of vedantic teaching is the divinity within us swami vivekananda said the two things that he taught is the divinity of the human soul and the oneness of all existence and indeed the divinity of the human soul and the oneness of all existence that is the theme today if you have seen the subject the sanskrit word mahavakya 
Mahavakya literally means great sentence. Vakya sentence, maha great, a profound sentence. And what is this great sentence? All of Vedantic teaching can be summarized, can be put in one sentence. That thou art. You are Brahman. You and the Absolute are one and the same reality. In fact, if I were to go e become even more radical, I would say what it means is this. There is no God but you, and you are nothing but God. Whatever you think of yourself as other than God, you are mistaken, and you are truly God. And whatever you think of God, you are mistaken unless you realize it as truly yourself, your own true self. So nothing less than that is the theme for this morning. And uh, I know I've been accused of being dry and philosophical and theoretical, but, and today is going to be the peak of that. <laughs> but I assure you, the rest of the, summer, the lectures before summer, are, the rest of the talks are going to be different. I mean, they're going to be, um, in June, they're going to talk about something very sweet, love, the way of love. And there are others coming uh, next week, uh, comes Professor Jeffrey Long from Elizabethtown College with a subject, very interesting subject, the yoga of Yoda. <laughs> if those of you who have seen Star Wars, you know what I'm talking about, the yoga of Yoda. Anyway, so there are um, many more subjects, many more interesting things in store before uh, summer. But today, we are going to talk about the most essential, the core teaching of Vedanta. All of Vedanta is expressed in this short sentence. It's a great sentence, not in words. In Sanskrit, you get great sentences which run on and on. I have seen a sentence running on for more than one page, one sentence. So in, not in that sense, not, not in the sense of a very long sentence. These great sentences are very short. But they are great in, in terms of meaning. In Sanskrit, arthato mahan. In terms of meaning, very profound. The definition of a Mahavakya, a profound sentence in Vedanta, a great sentence in Vedanta is any sentence which expresses the identity of the human and the divine, the identity of Jiva and Brahman. Jiva, Brahma, Aitya, Bodhaka, Vakyam. Any sentence which expresses the identity of you and God is a Mahavakya. There are many such sentences in the Vedas, especially in the Upanishads. But... For the sake of convention, for the sake of representation, we take four sentences in the Vedantic tradition, and I'm always talking about the Advaita Vedanta tradition. We take four sentences as representative of the four Vedas. These sentences are from the Rig Veda, uh, the Aitiriya Upanishad. You have a sentence, very short, two words. Pragyanam Brahma. Pragyanam Brahma. What does that mean? The awareness that you are feeling right now, right now, the sentience, the awareness, the consciousness that we experience right now at all times, that consciousness, truly understood, truly understood, is none other than the absolute Brahman, the one which you feel right now. Pragyanam Brahma. So this is from Aitareya Upanishad, which is from the Rig Veda. When you come to the next one, Sama Veda. You know the four Vedas? Rig Veda, Sama Veda, uh, Yajur Veda, Atharva Veda. So you come to the Sama Veda. In Sama Veda, Chandogya Upanishad. And the very famous 
of all the Mahavakyas, the most famous, most well-known is Tat Tvam Asi. In the Chandogya Upanishad, in the sixth chapter, nine times the teacher happens to be the father of the student. He repeats to his son, tells his son, teaches his son, that thou art. Tat Tvam Asi. Nine times. What is that? Brahman. What is thou? The individual you? You are Brahman. He teaches him nine times through different examples and different kind of reasoning. So that's from the Samaveda, Chandogya Upanishad. Then come to the third one, Yajurveda. In Yajurveda and the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, we find, you, can, you cannot get more direct than this, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. I am Brahman. I, the individual, if I truly know myself, then I am Brahman, the Absolute. That's from the Yajurveda, Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. And then we have the Atharva Veda, the fourth one, in the Mandukya Upanishad, the smallest of all Upanishads. There we find the sentence, I am Atma Brahma. I am Atma Brahma. What does it mean? This very self, I am this, Atma self. This very self is none other than Brahman. This very self is Brahman. So four sentences, and they don't say four different things. They don't add to each other. They all say the same thing in different ways. And from the Rig Veda, Pragyanam Brahma. This very awareness is Brahman. From the Sama Veda, Tattva Masi, that thou art. From the Yajur Veda, Aham Brahmasmi. And from the Atharva Veda, Ayamatma Brahma. This very self is Brahman. These are the four great Mahavakyas, the four Mahavakyas, four great sentences from the Vedanta literature. And as I said, there are many more. You can find many more sentences which satisfy the definition of a Mahavakya, that anything that expresses the identity of you and God is a Mahavakya. Before we go into more details, you know, this is the central truth of religion. I'm not just saying about Vedanta. In fact, if we look across the religious literature of the world, we find great mystics, it's usually the great mystics, who have come upon this truth in every religious tradition of the world. In every tradition. Um, I'll give you a few examples. William Law, who was an Anglican priest in the 18th century, in the Church of England. He was a mystic also. Um, in his writings, you find something beautiful. He says, William Lawson, he writes, remember, Anglican, Christian, he says, it is true that God is in all things, but man cannot see God outside. The senses which perceive all things cannot perceive God. So you cannot see God, you know, hear God or touch God. So senses cannot perceive God. The internal faculties, I'm quoting William Law, the internal faculties of man, the memory, the will, the uh, emotions, they reach for God and yet cannot reach him. But they have their source, he says, the internal faculties of, of man, they have their source in something which is central. And he gives three, three terms which he uses. Like he says, like they, are, they are like lines from a center, the internal faculties. 
our emotions, our intellect, our memory. They are like lines from a center. One example. They are like branches from the trunk of a tree. And they are like the, from the ground up. They come from a ground. The ground, he says, he says the ground, the fund, the center of all our faculties, the soul. And he says, the soul, instead of saying just the soul, he says there is the bottom of the soul. He says that at the very bottom of the soul we might find, we find infinity there. And that infinity is not satisfied in anything except the infinity of God. So you can see he's scrabbling for words to express something that he, has, he knows is right. And the infinity within, he says, there we will find God. That's William Law in the 18th century. Plotinus, of course, um, very uh, well-known mystic and who is very Vedantic. He says, each is all. The all is each. Uh, seeing the self in all and the all in the self. Uh, that's Upanishadic. Here he says, it is Plotinus. Each is all, all is each. Man as he is has ceased to be the all. But when man ceases to be an individual, he raises himself again to be the all and penetrates the universe. Again, you see, Mahavakya. In Taoism, Zhu, he says, where is the Tao? Do not ask whether the Tao is in this or that. The Tao penetrates all. It has... It has decreed that the all should be limited, but it in itself is unlimited. Then the Kabbalah, the Ein Sof, in the Jewish tradition, the Ein Sof, the ultimate reality, and yet it is also immanent. I was, um, in fact, in the Jewish theological uh, center here, there was a talk by a rabbi, who is a bit of a, of a, a radical, of course, in, in uh, Jewish uh, circles. I forget his name. He's in LA now. So an, a reporter interviewed him and she has written about uh, her experience with this rabbi. He says he, she says he looks like an Old Testament prophet with, um, with a beard and uh, blazing eyes and a very abrupt and direct manner. He says we in Judaism we talk of a relationship with God. So dualistic. It's a strongly dualistic approach, a relationship with God. You are separate from God, God is separate, and you have a relationship with God. But he says that that is just the beginning of understanding Judaism. He says ultimately when you go deeper, it is not a relationship with God, it's a relationship in God. And then he's, uh, the reporter writes, he stares at me with a fierce look, and he says, do you understand? It's not that the, the God is here, here, in your notebook, here, in this book, here. And he shakes the book in her face. <laughs> Do you understand this? Just in, in, in Judaism. Mahayana Buddhism, the Buddha nature. It's not that just the Gautama Buddha. The Buddha nature is in all and the whole purpose of Buddhism is to discover your own Buddha nature. So many Christian mystics, Saint Catherine of Genoa, Look at this, I really like this. My me, my me is God. Nor do I recognize any other me than God himself. In the bhakti traditions, you know, um, Sri Ramakrishna often, you, you love this. Naham, naham, tuhu, tuhu. 
Not I, not I, but thou, my Lord, thou, my Lord, in everything. It's devotional. It seems to be dualistic. But you're erasing your own individualistic nature. No me. It is God alone inside. And of course we come to Meister Eckhart, whom you would expect to be very Vedantic. Um, he says in one place, the ground of God is the ground of the soul. I, cannot, I, I don't think any Vedantic text expresses it any better. When we will go through the Mahavakya, the under, trying to understand the Mahavakya, ultimately we will come to this understanding, the ground of God. We'll, and we can understand it rationally, logically, when we go through the Vedantic process, but literally nothing more than this. The ground of God is the ground of my soul. In other words, what you consider to be God and what you consider to be individual, both are nothing but manifestations of one absolute, the ground of all existence. He says again, and there are many, many such Mahavakyas in Meister Eckhart. The knower and the known are one. Man thinks he will see God as here I am and there is God. But no, that is not true. One sees God only as oneself in knowledge. Mahavakya, Meister Eckhart. Sufis, they had a poetic, mystic intuition of the oneness uh, of the individual and God. I love this saying of a Sufi mystic. When I searched for God, I found myself. When I searched for myself, I found God. Mahavakya again. So in every tradition, we find this uh, intuition. I'm saying intuition because the philosophy, the theology, the rational, the procedure is not described. It, they have not found the step-by-step uh, -step approach to this. And also it must be admitted, in most traditions it was marginal. Uh, some mystics, somebody appreciated it, somebody intuited it, and they were regarded as mystical or way out there. This is not the center of religion, definitely not. And in sometimes they were persecuted, even murdered, uh, excommunicated. But in Vedanta, in Advaita Vedanta, this is the central theme. As Vivekananda says, the divinity of, 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 of the human and the oneness of all existence. Our own divinity and the oneness of existence, this is the central theme of the Mahavakya. Swami Vivekananda here, when he came to this, uh, this country, he said, Sinners, it is a sin to call these sinners. You are children of immortal bliss. He, the one thing that he preached again and again was the divinity of the human soul. That thou art. He popularized it. He would, he would um, chant the Sanskrit, Tattvamasi, and then translate into English. That thou art. More than a hundred years ago. Now, let us go a little deeper into this subject. When you say Tattvamasi, Tat means that, Tvam means thou, you, you and God are one and the same. Well, let's try to understand this. And when we try to understand this, we do come across a problem. How can I be God? How can a limited individual be the infinite God? In Vedantic terms, what is God and what is the individual? In Vedantic terms, the absolute Brahman, Satchidananda, through the power of Maya, in association with the power of Maya, is called God, Ishwara, Saguna Brahman. Nirguna Brahman, with the power of Maya, is called Saguna Brahman. Saguna Brahman is the Sanskrit term closest to what we, in English, what we call God. And it is the same Satchidananda, 
through ignorance, agyana, limited into an individual, into many individuals, becomes us, expresses itself as us. You can already see there is a ground of unity. If it's the same absolute which is appearing as God, and it's the same absolute which is appearing as the individual, you can already see what the Mahavakya, the great sentence, is pointing at. That beyond the individual and beyond, the God, beyond God, there is one unity, or there is one identity. So that's what we are trying to understand. Let's look at it in detail. And then we'll see, it's very interesting. Of the four Mahavakyas, Pragyanam Brahma, this very awareness is Brahman, Tattvamasi, that thou art, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, Ayamatma Brahma, this very self is Brahman. Of these four, Tattvamasi, that thou art is the most popular. And usually when we study Vedanta, preliminary, when we are introduced to Vedanta, baby Vedanta, we are, we are given that Tattvamasi as an exercise. So by that you understand Vedanta. In fact, by that, if you analyze that sentence, all of Vedanta comes in there. Whenever we speak about Vedanta, you know the question arises, who am I? Often people think Vedanta is an inquiry into the self. Who am I? But you know Vedanta is not actually an inquiry into the self. Vedanta inquiry into the self, why do they ask who am I? Because of this sentence. You see, I'm telling you something new here. That that thou art, that's the way to learn Vedanta. And in order to do that, you have to start with yourself. You have to start with yourself, with the self. And then you have to ask the question, who am I truly? So that's a part of understanding the sentence that thou art. Who am I is not really Vedanta. Who am I? In fact, you can ask in yoga, in Sankhya, um, when you are in sophomore, in, in college, who am I? You can ask that. <laughs> uh, but Vedanta is understanding the, the, your true identity with the divine. In order to do that, of course, the first thing that you need to know is, who am I really? And then all the Vedantic processes, which are which I have been speaking about all these months and you have been hearing in all Vedanta talks, the method of drigdrishya, seer and the seen, seer and the seen, the seer and the knower and the known are different and you finally isolate a knower, a pure consciousness, the witness. But knower and known are different is not really Vedanta. In fact, as Eckhart said, the knower and known are the one. Ultimately, you must come to that. But to reach that position, paradoxically, you first have to isolate yourself from everything that is an object. The method of the five sheets, I am not the body, I am not the vital sheet, I am not the mind, I am not the intellect, I am not the darkness, the, the, the uh, unmanifest beyond the intellect, Annamaya, Pranamaya, Manomaya, Vijnanamaya, Anandamaya, I am none of this, them, I am the witness of all of them. Another process, Avastatraya, I am, I am the witness of the waking state, I am the witness of the dream state, I am the witness of the deep sleep state. All these processes, Drigdrishya Viveka, Panchakosha Viveka, Avastatraya Vichara, all these processes meant to isolate you as a, a, in a radiance of pure consciousness, the witness of these states, of these five sheets. It's only a part of understanding that thou art. It's only the first step in understanding that. Let's go through the process, then I'll make some more general statements. The process is like this, what we learn in Vedanta classes. It may be a little um, 
complex, not actually, it's not all that complex, but if you follow carefully, you will find it very interesting. It goes like this. You take the sentence, that thou art, tattvam asi. Now, the traditional way of learning from the pundits in, in India is, there is something called a purvapaksha, an opponent, and a siddhanta paksha, you, yourself, what you are trying to establish. Say Vedanta is trying to establish you are one with God. And the opponent could be any one of different philosophical schools or just a general questioner who will come up and raise questions. When the questions are raised and you answer the questions, it's a very interesting way of learning. So the moment you say, that thou art, you are one with Brahman, it expresses the identity of the individual with the absolute. The first question arises, just a minute, wait a minute. It's a sentence? Yes. You have a group of words? Yes. So you have a, a sentence must have more than one word. Look at the objection. A sentence must have more, more than one word. If there are more than one word, each word means something? Yes. So each word must mean something different. Right. So there cannot be an identity. You see, when you say the clock is on the table, look at the words. Clock, one word. On, another word. Table, another word. They mean three different things. The clock means this, the table means this, and the on expresses an identity of the clock, and a, a, a relationship, a relationship between the clock and the table. So if you have a sentence, you must have more than one word. If you have more than one word, each word must have a meaning. And each word definitely does not have the same meaning. It will have different meanings. So if you have different meanings, how can it express an identity? You have different things. So it cannot be an identity. Then what does tattvamasi mean? The Sanskrit grammar is very flexible, so you can interpret it in a different way. The dualist will say it's pretty easy. Tattvamasi means tadadhinatvamasi. That is the Lord and you are the servant. You are an individual being. You are a jiva. You are an individual soul. And that is the Lord of the universe. You are the servant of the Lord. That's it. Now we say, what, what will the non-dualist say now? The non-dualist says, look, it is true what you are saying, but sentences can be of two types. One type of sentence is where the, all the words express different meanings, as you said. But there are sentences where all the words express the same meaning. They all refer to the same thing. For example, you have something called the Vishnu Sahasranama or Lalita Sahasranama. The thousand names of Vishnu are more appropriately today being Mother's Day. The thousand names of the Divine Mother, Lalita Sahasranama. And there are more, more than a thousand words actually. And all of those words refer to what? To mother, to the divine mother. So you have all these verses, full of words, thousand words, and all of them refer to the divine mother. When we chant here to Sri Ramakrishna, Stapakaya cha dharmasya sarva dharmasvarupine avatara vadishthaya Ramakrishna. So all those words, Ramakrishna means what? Stapakaya dharmasya, the establisher of religion, means what? That. Sarva dharma swarupini, the embodiment of all religions, the, means what? That. Avatara varishta, the epitome of, uh, of uh, incarnations, means what? That. So, so many words, all of them meaning one reality. So you can have sentences which mean, with many words, which mean the same thing. Technically, this, this is called samanadhikaranyam. Adhikarana, ground. Samana adhikarana. All the words refer to one ground. Many words, they are all referring to one ground, one, one reality, one referent. So, 
The non-dualist, this is stage one, we'll go in three stages. The non-dualist says, first of all we claim, tat tuam asi, that thou art, is a special sentence of the type of, which has samanadhikaranyam. It is that class of sentences with many words which refers to one thing only. And they have a technical characteristic. In Sanskrit grammar, they all share the same case ending. You see? Sthapakaya cha dharmasya sarva dharmaswarupini avatar. Even though Sanskrit grammar, um, the fourth case ending is there. So here, all of them share the same case ending. So literally, samanadhikaranyam. All the words refer to the same entity. First point. Okay, the dualist says, okay, have it your way. But then another person comes and says, all of them refer to the same entity, but is it like, when you say, um, brown table, the example they use is blue lotus. When you say blue lotus, nilotpala, blue lotus, what do you mean? The blue there refers to not, any, not a blue sky, not a blue shirt, um, or not a blue bird, but it refers to the blue lotus, right? It refers to that lotus. And when you say the word lotus, it means not a red lotus or a yellow lotus or a, um, a white lotus, but it means a blue lotus. It means that lotus only. So the lotus, uh, um, you know, uh, it, it rules out other things, like I said it the other way around. When you say lotus, it rules out a blue sky, it rules out a blue shirt, it rules out a blue bird. It means only the lotus. And when you say blue, it rules out a white lotus or a red lotus or a yellow lotus, but it means only the blue lotus. So the two words, they refer to the same thing, true, true. But what is the relationship between the two words? One is a, an adjective, other one is a noun. A lotus, what kind of lotus? Blue lotus. And we say, yeah, what, are, what about that? So what? And here comes the, you know, they will put it so logically, you will feel like saying, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And the moment you say, yes, you're trapped. <laughs> they, they will tear your entire philosophy apart. So they're saying that, okay, tat tuamasi, that means God, tuam means you, the individual. So are they related like the blue lotus? We agree, they refer to the same thing. After all, blue and lotus refer to the same flower, right? One, one flower, blue lotus. Blue here, lotus here. So, and they are related as adjective and noun. Is it the relationship between you and God? Are you an adjective to the noun of God? Are you a characteristic of God? Are you a feature of God? Is God characterized by individual sentient beings and an insentient universe? If you say, yes, one God of whose parts we are. It's a whole and we are parts of that. It's a unity of which we are the components. If you say yes, that sounds okay, just about right. Then you are immediately have gone and accepted Vishishtadvaita. <laughs> Jiva Jagat Vishishta Brahma. Brahman is characterized by a multitude of sentient beings. Us, we are there. We are parts of God. Just like hands and feet and head and belly are parts of this body. They are not the whole of, of, of the body. They are parts of the body. They are not apart from the body either. Similarly, all living beings, all of us, all souls, we are all parts of God, not apart from God. We constitute a unity. Uh, and God has, it, has his own existence apart from us, but we have no existence apart from God. So we constitute the body of God as it were. Is it like that? We say no. We do not accept this. 
we say it's an absolute unity. They qualify each other in only in this way. Uh, that when, when, when we say thou and that, you and God, we mean you only as nothing other than God and God as nothing other than you. We make this bold claim, you are not what you think you are. You're not a body, you're not a mind, you're not what your passport tells you, what your driving license tells you. No, no, no. At the most, that's a very shallow understanding, a surface understanding of your reality. What you are in depth is the divine. And what God is, nothing other than you. In Vishishtadvaita, you cannot say God is nothing other than you. You are a tiny part of God. You are a spark of a bonfire that is God. You are a ray of the sun that is God. One ray is not the sun. So here we are saying there is no part and whole relationship. There is no whole relationship. You and God are absolutely identical. How do you prove that? That's very difficult. We come to the third stage, which is called technically Lakshya Lakshana Bhava. What happens here? Here, the question is raised. You see, there is a fundamental contradiction between the two terms, God and individual. What are the contradiction? Well, first of all, my own existence, I, I know I, I exist, my existence is evident. But God's existence is taken on faith. I read about it, I hear about it, and I know that Ramakrishna and other mystics had visions of God. But for me, it's a matter of faith. And my own existence is not a matter of faith. I exist, it's evident to me, one. So one is a matter of faith, one is directly evident. How can they be the same? You see the contradiction? How can something that I believe, do I believe that I exist because I read about it in books? No. I look at my DMV and say, Swami uh, Sarva Priyananda, this is, oh, then I must be, I, I am in the D D DMV license, hence I exist, a kind of parody of Descartes. Huh? I think, therefore I am. Descartes started off by doubting everything that could be doubted, very Vedantic approach. And he stopped when he said, I cannot doubt that I'm doubting. That thinking is going on. So I think, therefore I am. And there was this cartoon um, in, I think, a, an issue of Mind, which is the most prestigious uh, journal of philosophy uh, in England. And there Descartes is sitting in a typical uh, French pa Parisian cafe. And the waitress comes, um, Monsieur Descartes, another cup of coffee? And Descartes says, I think not. And he disappears. <laughs> I think that I'm there So I think not. <laughs> anyway. How, how can something that is immediately evident to you, you exist. And God's evident, uh, existence is, is doubtful, is open to faith, is, is based on faith. How can they be the same thing? That thou art. It sounds nice to say it and nice to believe it. But logically you cannot prove it like that. And there are so many contradictions. God is omniscient. How much do you know? Even, even if you know a lot, it's nowhere near omniscience. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. Where are you present? Just in one seat. No matter how overweight you may be, you can't occupy more than one. At the most, you can occupy two seats. But God <laughs> occupies the universe. So that which is omnipresent and that which is present in a tiny spot of the universe in one corner of the universe how can they be the same? God is all-powerful. How powerful are we? We are, we are weak creatures. And so in every way, God and the individual are very, very different. How can you say that they are the same? 
How can you say they are the same? They're evidently not the same. So this is the charge that the dualist schools, the, um, the bhakti schools, they level at the non-dualist and say you are being blasphemous by uh, asserting the identity of the individual and God. So how do we deal with this? This is the third stage. Now a principle is, if the direct meaning of a sentence does not work out, then the indirect meaning must be taken. And we do that all the time in our life. If the words themselves do not make sense, we must take some implied meaning. Otherwise the sentence makes no sense. I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, there are different options. You see, if you cannot take the direct meaning, the only option you're left with is either the sentence is wrong and no Vedantin will admit a Vedic sentence is wrong. They can't have been crazy. They're not talking at the top of their heads. They must mean something. If the direct meaning is not, not applicable, as an individual being, you are not God, clearly. Then what does it mean? In what sense are you God? So that sense must be God by a process called implied meaning. Direct meaning, primary meaning, in Sanskrit, mukhyartha. And implied meaning, in Sanskrit, lakshyartha. Lakshyartha, implied meaning. We need some implied meaning which will fit the sentence, which will make, the, which will make sense. So the implied meaning goes like this. Now we have three options. By the way, if it sounds complicated, it is not complicated. I am giving you the shorter version. <laughs> For example, do you remember the first stage when I said the sentence can be samanadhikaranyam, um, all the words refer to one, uh, one meaning? I just said that. But a, a traditional pandit would not be satisfied. The, the reply would be, yes, but samanadhikaranyam means all the words refer to one meaning. In Sanskrit, you have 16 different types of samanadhikarnyam. Which one? So I'm not gone into the details. It's an enormous thing. Uh, but I'm just giving, skimming over the surface, giving an outline. So we are at the third stage now. I can see some people screwing up their brows, eyebrows. And things. Which were the first and second stages? The first stage was samanadhikarnyam. All the words referring to one meaning. The second stage was what is called the adjectival meaning, where the uh, qualified non-dualist Vishishtadvaitin was blue lotus was trying to tempt us into accepting that option which we rejected but now we have to explain the uh, sentence now we are on the third stage which is the stage of implied meaning lakshyartha now implied meaning can be of three types first type is this um, which is called ajahad lakshana without giving up the uh, original meaning it works like this there is an example Shona Dhavati, that's a traditional example. The red one is running. The red one is running. How can the red one run? A red color can be running if it's raining or something. But what it means is in the, in the uh, races, horses are running. So when you say the red is winning, the red is winning, you mean the red horse is winning. So you have to supply one more word, horse, to make the sentence will make sense. Shona Ashwadhavati in Sanskrit. Red horse is running. So you supplied one more, uh, one more word. And so it will make... Original word is retained. The original word is retained. And you add, add one more word, it will make sense. So does it work like that? Do you add something to the, to the individual to make that individual God? Maybe give the individual superpowers or something to make that individual God? It will not work. 
the individual who is sub we are subject to misery, we are subject to birth and death, we are subject to ignorance. If you keep all that and add something else, it will not make a difference. There's a funny story of a gentleman who, they were going to a party, and his wife said, what's that foul smell? Have you changed your socks? And he said, no, no, I haven't. You must put on a fresh pair of socks. It's smelling bad. And then they go to the party, and the smell is still there. And his wife comes up to him closely and in, in, in the party and whispers, Did you change your socks like I told you to change your socks? He said, I did. But where's the smell coming from? Oh, the old pair. I put it in my pocket. <laughs> now, if you add something, a fresh pair of socks, and you retain the old one, if you retain our individuality, subject to limitation and sorrow and disease and old age and death and rebirth, all of that is retained and you add something else, it does not help the situation. That is not the meaning of that thou art. So we reject this option. This first option which is called ajahad lakshana. Without giving up the original meaning, you add something. The second one is jahad lakshana. You give up the original meaning and add something and, and get something close. The example given, classic example is Gangayam Ghoshaha. Um, my Sanskrit teacher would be so happy that I'm giving all those traditional Sanskrit examples in New York. <laughs> Gangayam Ghoshaha, which means the, the, um, those who have cows, uh, the, the dairy farmers, their house is on the Ganges. Ganga, the Ganges. Ghosha are, are the, the, those who are traditionally um, they are milkmen. Now what it means is not literally their house is on the river. We all understand. What does it mean? On the bank of the river. It's a common, um, a, a common expression. Um, in fact, I've seen old letters from Swami Vivekananda. It's written Belur on Ganges. Right? In the oldest letters you'll find writing from Belur on Ganges. So... This on, so something on the Hudson. It doesn't mean on the Hudson, unless you are that plane, uh, which, which, was, which was literally on the Hudson. Uh, but otherwise, it's on the bank of the Hudson. In the same way, uh, the house of the Ghoshas is on the bank of the Ganges. So you gave up the meaning the, of the word Ganga, Ganges. You gave up the meaning completely, nothing to do with the river. It's on the bank of the river. Of course, it must be something close by. You can't take any meaning. You can't give up this meaning and you can say the, it's on the bank of the Yamuna River or the Hudson River. No. It has to be on the bank of that river. You get what I'm saying. Give up the original meaning, take something which makes sense close by. It's a similar meaning. Can you do that here? No, you cannot. The reason is we are trying to understand that how we are one with the divine. And our real nature is pure consciousness, Nirguna Brahman, through ignorance becomes individual being. If you give up the whole thing, if you give up that whole meaning and take something else, then you're giving up the absolute Brahman also. I'll repeat. The meaning of you, that thou art, the meaning of thou in this sentence is Nirguna Brahman, the absolute, plus ignorance. Through ignorance becomes me or you. If you take the whole thing and give it up, like the Ganges, you give up and try to get some other meaning, it will not work because what we are trying to understand ourselves is Brahman, that's also already given up. So you cannot, give, you cannot give up the whole meaning. So this option is also rejected. The third option comes in now. The last one, which we will accept. 
This is called Bhagatyaga Lakshana. We reject a part of the meaning and take a part of the meaning. Reject a part of the meaning and take a part of the meaning. How does it work? We always use it all the time. I bought a mango and I ate a mango. When you say I bought a mango, what do you mean? You bought the whole fruit. And when you say I ate a mango, what do you mean? I ate only the edible part of it. I threw away the skin and the seed. You use the same word, mango. In, one, in the first case, you took the whole mango. In the second case, you took only the edible part of the mango. And we have no problem understanding it. I took a bath in the Ganges. I took a bath, in a dip in the holy river Ganga. That doesn't mean I took a bath from, from Gangotri to the Bay of Bengal. Right? The, all of the Ganga. No. Just a dip where I am. I took a dip there. So I mean a part of the river. Maybe even a tiny part of the river. So when we use the words like this, we are taking a part of the meaning and leaving out the rest. And we always do it. We have no problem. Where are you? Oh, I, right now I am in the Vedanta Society of uh, New York. You don't know, occupy the entire Vedanta Society. You are in a tiny part of the Vedanta Society of New York. And everybody understands what you mean. In the same way, the solution to this problem, how do you understand that thou art, is you take a part of the meaning. You take implied meaning is the third kind of implied meaning, which is Bhagatyaga Lakshana, taking a part of the meaning. How do you do that? The example they give is, this is that Devadatta, Soyam Devadatta. Devadatta is a standard name in Vedanta, like, um, like John, like John Doe or something like that, you know, a common name for everybody, uh, or John Smith. So Devadatta. Who is Devadatta? It could be anybody. This is that Devadatta means that Devadatta whom I'd seen in Mumbai 20 years ago and young. I see that Devadatta in Manhattan, here, and older, and maybe he's put on weight. He was young and fit then, now he's, he's older and he's put on weight. Now look at the contradiction. That was then, this is now. That was Mumbai, this is Manhattan. That was younger, this is older. And yet we know what we mean when we say, this is that Devadatta. Lot of contradictory terms. But the person is the same. We immediately understand. Yes. I am not confused. It could be there and here. It could be in the past. It could be in the present. It could be younger. It could be older. But the person is the same. I understand that. Exactly in the same way. What is common to God and man? What is common to you and Brahman? And, 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 and God? Is one pure consciousness. Through Maya becomes God. Through an individual ignorance, ajnana, I'm not going into the depths, you are all Vedanta students, so you know some of this. Through an individual ignorance, ajnana, it becomes us. Ignore the maya aspect of it. Ignore the ajnana. Ignore the my body and mind and the, uh, the, the causal body, the ignorance. Beyond that, the pure consciousness which you discover is exactly the pure consciousness which through maya becomes God. Without maya, that pure consciousness... Without body, mind, and causal body, the gross body, subtle body, and causal body. Ignoring that, the background consciousness, the witness consciousness, is one and the same. That is the meaning of that thou art. In Eckhart's terms, the ground of God and the ground of your soul are one and the same. What is the ground of God? Satchidananda, Nirguna Brahman. What is the ground of your own soul? What are you actually? Satchidananda. Nirguna Brahman. That is why we go through the process of I am not the body, I am not the mind. The entire process of 
seer and seen, the five um, uh, sheets, we distinguish ourselves from that and we find a witness consciousness. Only that witness consciousness can be equated with Brahman. Not this individual trapped in body and mind, in the shells of body, mind, and there's a causal body also. So beyond the three bodies, causal body, subtle body, gross body, beyond the five sheets, Andamaya, Pranamaya, Manomaya, Vijnanamaya, Anandamaya, beyond the three states uh, of uh, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, and yet in and through the three bodies, five sheets, and three states, is one pure consciousness, existence, bliss. There, God and individual are one and the same. So we've established that thou art. That's the end of the exercise. So <laughs> to, to, to summarize what we did was in the exercise, I'm, I'll summarize the exercise, that take the sentence, that thou art. It equally applies to all the other three sentences also. That means God, pure consciousness plus maya. Thou means you, pure consciousness plus ignorance plus a subtle body, mind, plus a physical body, this one, and you become this. Now you go through the three stages. First is a semantic question. How can one sentence, refer, one sentence refer to one and the same thing? Many words, one and same thing. We said samana dhikaranyam. Then the second stage, is it an adjectival relationship? The blue lotus? No. Uh, not in, that, in the sense of the vishishtadvaita. And the third stage was the lakshya lakshana bhava. That means implied meaning. Because the direct meaning does not work. God and man cannot be the same. There's a non-dualist, uh, there is a dualist text uh, which uh, attacks the non-dualist, saying that shame on you, you a little insect groveling on the surface of the earth and the divine hurry in a Vaikuntha, you think you are one and the same. How blasphemous can you get? So that's not what we mean. We are living our, we are excluding that divine glory, we are excluding the miserable individuality and seeing the ground of both as one radiance of existence consciousness place. That's the only reality. That's why the Jagat Mithyatva, the illusoriness, the falsity of the world is a key Advaita doctrine. When I say ignore the body and mind, what do you mean ignore the body and mind? If the body and mind are real, you cannot ignore them. It's an appearance. It's an appearance. If you are praying to God in your dreams, suppose, in your dream you are there and God appears before you and you're praying to God, when you wake up, what happens to the one who was praying and the one who was being prayed to? Both of them become your mind. You alone were God in the dream and the one who was praying, right? You ignore the... So because it was an appearance, a falsity, you could say the reality is the mind which dreamt it up. In the same way, it's an appearance in Satchidananda, existence consciousness place. So this is the analysis of the Mahavakya, the great sentence. But now some interesting statements I'll make, um, some general observations. You see how powerful this statement is. Follow this carefully. All religions of the world, all spiritual aspiration, all spiritual practices are either in the category of that or in the category of thou. Religions. Look at some, some of the religions are God-centered, that-centered. Christianity, Islam, Judaism. In Hinduism you have the worship of Shiva, Shaivism, worship of the Divine Mother, today's Mother's Day, Shakta, the worship of Vishnu, the Vaishnava, all the theistic parts of Hinduism, all of them 
They are all that-centered religions. They are all God-centered. And you'll say, yeah, God, religion has to be God-centered. So what else can it be? Yeah. Then what about, what about Buddhism? They no, do not talk about God. And in fact, some Buddhists will actively deny the existence of God. Buddhism. Jainism. In Hinduism, you'll find Sankhya, Yoga. Sankhya does not talk about God, and Yoga talks about God, but the God that Yoga talks about is not the God of theistic religions. It's different. So, you have these traditions which are based on self-enquiry. They come to very different conclusions, but Buddhism, Jainism, Sankhya, Yoga, there are a there's set of religious approaches which inquire into what is this, this phenomenon of the self. They are Thou-centered religions. Tat, Tvam. Some religions are Tat-centered, that God-centered. Some religions are Tvam-centered. And I have seen I, in the Belur monastery when young men would come to become monks, I would ask them, what are you looking for in spiritual life? And many of them would say, I'm searching for God. Fine, that's one group. Another group would say, God is fine, but, but I am really searching for who am I? What's the purpose of my life? What is going on here? What's the reality of this? So you see, both have come to become monks. Both have come for a spiritual life. But their quest seems to be different. One is looking for God. One is looking for the reality within. That and thou. Spiritual life itself can be that and thou. And spiritual practices. If you look at the that-centered religions, no matter how much they fight among each other, how much they claim superiority or whatever, you will find all of them are generally devotional, bhakti-oriented. All of them are generally oriented around church or mosque or temple. All of them have festivals. All of them have, they, they, uh, have rituals and prayers. They have a lot of common features. The that-centered religions. And if you look at the thou-centered religions, thwam-centered religions, like Buddhism or Jainism or yoga or Sankhya, you will find... They are more meditation-oriented, more philosophy-oriented, more inward-looking. Different again. So the, the spiritual practices also differ depending upon which track you are taking. You'll notice that I did not include Advaita in the Tao-centered religions. You were thinking I would, but I did not. Now, The Tao-centered religions and the that-centered religions have their individual advantages and disadvantages. It's very interesting. Look at this. The that-centered religion, God-centered religion, which is most religions of the world, many of the religions of the world, major religions, God-centered religions, they have a serious disadvantage. Why? Because the center of the religion is God, and God is a matter of faith. You have to believe in the existence of God. Religion starts with faith, with belief. And for a long time, it proceeds on belief. How do you know that God exists? One common feature of these God-centered religions are arguments in theology to prove the existence of God. Um, Thomas Aquinas, the five ways of proving the existence of God in Christian theology, Summa Theologica. A couple of hundred, two, three hundred years before Thomas Aquinas, the the Hindu dualists, Nayaikas, who were engaged in a thousand-year battle with the Buddhists, uh, debate on the existence of the soul and existence of God. The Hindu dualists, they, they claim that there is a substance called a soul, the dualists. 
And there is something called God, an eternal reality called God. And the Buddhists attacked both the substance theory of, of the self and that there is an eternal reality called God. No, they attacked both. And there was a long battle. One of the greatest Nayaikas who was who, about a thousand years ago, Acharya, he wrote two books, his two masterpieces. Even now they are taught in advanced classes in philosophy in India. Nyaya Kusumanjali and Atma Tattva Viveka. Nyaya Kusumanjali is a, is a text which gives about nine or ten proofs of the existence of God. Trying to argue to the existence of God. And the Atma Tattva Viveka gives proofs of the existence of, of an immortal soul. And you find some similarities between um, uh, Aquinas' proofs and some of them. And Udayana's proofs. There's a funny story of Udayana Acharya going to Puri, Jagannath Puri, and in, in uh, Orissa, where the Lord Jagannath in the temple. And the great logician, theologian, Udayana Acharya goes there to pay his obeisance to the Lord of the universe. And because at certain times temples are closed because food offerings are being made to the de- deity. So at that time it was closed. Now Udayana Acharya, very heartily, he said, What? I have come to bow down to you and the door is closed. When the Buddhists attack you, you come to me for help to prove your existence. <laughs> and now I have come, I have come here, you, you, are, you have haughtily shut your door to me. So it's a humorous kind of thing. Now, in all these traditions, there is an attempt to prove the existence of God because it's a question of faith. And it's always open to doubt. You see in the lives of great sages and saints that they are attacked by the demon of doubt. That problem is not there in the Tao-centered religion because it investigates your own existence. And what is most obvious, most beyond any doubt is I exist. Anything else may or may not exist, but I have some kind of existence, even if as thought, like Descartes would say. But I exist. There's no doubt. My own existence is self-revealed to me. So Tao-centered religion has an advantage that what it is about is not a question of doubt. No Buddhist will, will try to prove the existence of the appearance of the soul, uh, I mean, of, of the self. They show that the self is momentary and an appearance, but that it appears, that it is evident. Nobody will try to prove that. It's clear. Um, but then there's a pro- problem here. There's a problem in the Tao-centered religion which is not there in the that-centered religion. What is the problem? In the Tao-centered religion, Tuam-centered religion, the problem is I exist, there is no doubt, but that doesn't help me. My existence is the problem. I am surrounded by a thousand problems. I have got mortgages to pay off, I have health problems, and, uh, and I, ha- I am facing old age and death, and people are mean, mean to me, and uh, the new iPhone doesn't fit the old charger of the old iPhone, <laughs> and it's so difficult to find parking in Manhattan. And so I have many problems, big and small. My existence, though, without doubt, is definitely surrounded by many, many problems. How does that help me? Whereas the that-centered religions have that, do not have that problem. God, if he, she, it exists, if it exists. God has no problem. God is infinite, infinitely powerful, all-loving, omniscient, omnipresent, uh, omnipotent. So God has no problem at all. God is having a good time of it, if God exists. And I exist, no doubt about it, but I have problems. Now comes Advaita Vedanta, the Mahavakya. What does it do? You see what Advaita Vedanta does is this. It's remarkable. It combines the certainty of your existence with the infinitude of God. 
God without problems. Why? Infinite. But only problem is, does he exist? You, no doubt that you exist, but with problems. All your problems are removed when you realize that I am not the body, not the mind. I am one with God, the infinity of God. I am an infinite existence, consciousness, consciousness bliss. So your own certainty is combined with the infinitude of God. Advaita, what does Advaita do basically? It takes you as you are, investigates you and arrives at your own infinitude. One Swami in Uttarakhand in the Himalayas asked another Swami, Hindi, Ishwar ke astitto me akatya praman dijiye. Give me an irrefutable proof of the existence of God. And the immediate reply was, your own existence, aapka astitto. It makes sense in Advaita Vedanta because your existence and the existence of God both are the same ground as Eckhart would say. The ground of my soul and the ground of God are one and the same ground. You are certain of your existence, yes. Then the way God is understood in Advaita Vedanta, you, you have to be certain of the existence of God also. What Advaita tries to do is show you the infinity of your own existence. Infinitude of your own existence. Combines the certainty with infinitude. It's a tremendous achievement actually. If one actually begins to see what they are saying, it's fantastic. Uh, I will conclude this talk and we'll take it up for discussion afterwards. I'm sure you have questions. I'll conclude this talk by something that Shankaracharya says. Um, Shankaracharya has written you know, commentaries on the Upanishads, on the Bhagavad Gita, but his masterpiece undoubtedly is this. It looks little, but it's enormous actually. Um, it's called Brahma Sutra, the 555 aphorisms of Badarayana Vyasa, which form the matrix of Vedanta philosophy. And the commentary of Shankaracharya lays the foundation of non-dual Vedanta. So anybody who seriously wishes to understand non-dualism in depth, one day has to come to this. I'll say one day, don't start with this. Nothing will put you off non-dual Vedanta as fast as this book. I, this is the first book the English version, this is, in, this, is the, this is only the Sanskrit original. The English version was the first book I borrowed from the library in Deoghar when I joined as a brahmachari. And I walked out of the library with this shiny book translated by Swami Gambhirananda. And a Swami asked me, good, what book have you got? I said, this is the Brahma Sutra Bhashya. I didn't even know what it was. Translated by Swami Gambhirananda. And he said, very good, you won't understand a single word. I was so scared, I immediately went back to the library and returned it. And I didn't open it until it was taught to us when we went to Belurma to learn Vedanta. But anyway, 555 aphorisms and Shankaracharya's very masterful commentary. I have said on another occasion that the first sentence of this Brahma Sutra Bhashya, uh, commentary by Shankaracharya, Professor J.N. Mohanty, who is one of the leading philosophers of India, both East and West, he is a master in phenomenology of Husserl and also in Vedanta philosophy. He told me, Swami, in all the sacred and philosophical literatures of the East and West which I have read, I have not come across a more profound sentence than the first sentence of the Brahma Sutra Bhashya, the commentary of Shankaracharya. I'm leaving it to you, but I'm not going to tell that now. <laughs> but what I'm going to say is from the, um, the sixth sutra, of the second section of the first chapter. The question is raised there, don't you non-dualists say that there is only one reality, Brahman? Then who is this individual reality in the body? Who is this individual being in the body? You. Then who are you? 
Why do you speak about Brahman and the individual? That and thou. Who can be thou if there is only one reality? Right? Thou means millions. Seven, there are seven billion of us and trillions of creatures. But you are saying there is only one reality. So who are these? And the answer given here is this. I will give you the original Sanskrit um, and then translate. Beautiful Sanskrit. He says you are right. There is only one reality. But Paraeva Atma Deha Indriya Mano Buddhi Upadi Bhi Parichidyamano Balehi Shari Raityupacharyate. One undivided reality, self, associated with body, sense, the sense, sense organs, mind and intellect, etc., associated with that, looks as if separate from each other. And children, I mean philosophical children, call them embodied beings. What is it like? Yatha, ghata karaka di upadhi vashad, just like the, spa the space, the infinite space, when it seems to be cut into, you know, like there are pots and jars, and you say the pot space, the jar space, the bottle space, and so on, all those space is not cut up, it's not limited by a pot and a jar. It looks like that, just like that. He says, Tadvat. You see, if you have a glass, and water, half the glass is water and half of it is, you might say air, but okay, there's space there. When you, the, when you move the glass, the water in it moves, surely, otherwise you'll make a big mess. When you move the glass, the water in it moves. Does the space in the glass move? You should say no, confident no. No, the glass moves through space. When you move the glass, the water in it moves. If you have the air in it, that also moves with the glass. But the space in the glass does not move. It's the glass move which moves through space. The glass or the pot or the jar cannot cut up, cannot actually enclose space. It just looks like that. It just looks like that. Exactly like that. One pure consciousness existence bliss seems to be different because it's associated with different bodies, minds, sense organs, um, intellects. And then he says... Mahavakya, he says. Tadapekshayacha karma katritwadi bheda vyavaharo na virudhyate prak tattvamasi iti atma ekatva upadesha grahanat. Before you come to Vedanta, there is no problem in using things like I am this person, I am the doer, I am the enjoyer, I suffer. Um, you know, the individual life. I'm a young person, old person, I die, I live. All these sentences make sense. Before you hear that thou art. Once you understand that, what happens? Grihite tu atma ekatve bandha mokshadi sarva vyavahara parisamapti revasyat. What a tremendous statement. Once you realize the meaning of that thou art, all of these cease to have meaning. All ideas of bondage, liberation, spiritual life, everything ceases. Because you are Brahman. Shankaracharya sings, Na dharmo na chartho na kamo na moksha chidananda rupaha shivoham shivoham I do not desire pleasure. I do not desire success and wealth and money. I do not desire even dharma, religious merit. I do not even desire moksha, enlightenment. I do not desire moksha, enlightenment. Why? 
I am Brahman. I'm already, I always have been free. I was space, once, you, once space realizes, oh, I am not cut up in a little pot. I am the infinite space. Then you put as many parts as you want and you break the parts, makes no difference to the space. In the same way, when we realize the meaning of that, thou art. Body, mind, individual being struggling for liberation, all of that loses meaning. Life will go on as it is, but you are above that already. So what a beautiful sentence. Grihite tu atma ekatve. Once one realizes the unity, the identity of that and thou. Atma ekatva. Bandha mokshadi sarva vyavahara. Bondage, liberation, etc. Every other kind of relative transactional dealings. All of them, parisamapti, uh, completely cease. Cease means the appearance will continue. The game of life will continue. For you, they are gone. They are gone. They are gone, not that they were there and now they have ceased. They were never there, you realize that. They were never there. The space in the pot, when it realizes, I am the infinite space, then will it think that, oh, I was trapped in a pot, now I have been released? No, no. It will think that, I thought I was trapped in a pot, but that's not true. I never was trapped. Never was there birth for me, never was there death for me, never was there suffering, disease and ignorance for me. I am existence absolute, bliss absolute, and consciousness absolute. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanam Astur